This is an ABC podcast. Hilary Harper here with Life Matters. If I showed you a picture of my first guest today from the mid-1980s, you'd think, oh, yes, I remember her. As a teen, Alison Bray was on the cover of Dolly and Cleo very often, and that was very validating for her. But decades later, as Alison Daddo, she found another big transition period, menopause, very different. Weight gain, depression, relationship problems. Things really turned around for her, though, so much so that she feels it's been a time of rebirth, ultimately. We so often hear about the negative aspects of menopause and its prequel, perimenopause. Today on Life Matters, we'll hear how it can change lives for the better. Coming to you from the lands of the Kulin Nation. Alison Daddo was blindsided by the lead-up to menopause. Perimenopause was a difficult, depressing, destabilising time. But she says she came out the other side stronger, healthier and awakened to who she really was. Yes, please. Could I have some of that too? We'll hear a bit more soon about the medical and psychological effects of perimenopause. But Alison's written a book to try to help other people who are going through this. It's called Queen Menopause, Finding Your Majesty in the Mayhem. Alison, welcome. Oh, thanks so much, Hilary. It's a pleasure. I just have this image of someone in a dressing gown with this really tired expression, but a crown on their head. <laughs> I can't wait to talk <laughs> and, about and that, hand, that. A handheld fan in the other. other oh, yeah. And a very large <laughs> chocolate bar. Well, That's right. And Alison, I love the alternative titles you had for this book, Losing Your Eyebrows, Gaining a Beard, Supermodel to Super Old, and Why Can't You Read My Mind, You Complete Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what was going on for you when, when menopause started. What happened physically and mentally? Oh, look, it was it was just such a surprise in so many ways. Um, you know, I think like so many of us out there, that I, I hadn't heard any of the details about what could happen. I just thought it was a natural, well, I mean, it is a natural occurrence, but just, you know, your period stops and life goes on. But then when my cycle went weird. I gained all the weight. I was sleepless. I was anxious. I was hot flushing. I just thought, hang on, what on earth is this? (laughs) And the more I looked into it, the more I read about it. and, And then the more I finally was going, whoa, whoa, this is so much more than just your period stopping. And it really took me by surprise in so many ways that, you know, I have all these older girlfriends that never told me about it. I'm the youngest of three sisters that didn't discuss it with me. So, it was just really um, alarming about the lack of conversation around menopause. And, um, yeah, so I just really wanted to dive into that and go, okay, I felt really alone in it. I felt really lost. Let's make sure that the next group of women, the next generation and, and onwards are not having that same experience. Well, yeah, and you draw these parallels in the book to the time when you got your first period and no one talked about that either and it wasn't yeah. a fun celebratory thing. It was a source of shame. And, I mean, a lot of people, when they get to midlife, they've got a lot of other stuff going on as well and, and there's a lack of knowledge but also – and I think this is the case for you, wasn't it, Alison? You're just really busy. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, you've gone through so much already physically often as a woman. You know, you've dealt with your period cramps and your endometriosis and your labour delivery and torn perineums and, and all that stuff. And you kind of think you're through. And, yeah, you you know, for many of us, again, you're dealing with te- often teenagers, ageing parents, and you're working. And so – 
it hits at a time when I think we're probably at our busiest. Um, and But it was such, you know, as I say in the book, and I'm so glad you've got a slant on this about, you know, the good things that also come from it. But it was a, it was a huge wake-up call for me. And, Alison, I want to dive a bit more with you into what it was like uh, to go through those physical changes. Given that in your formative years you'd been known as a very pretty, very attractive, uh, you know, um, slim woman, you basically ticked all the boxes for what society wants in a, in a girl. Yeah, look, the thing that I had moved away from, which was really of great benefit to me in a lot of ways, is when when I um, our family moved to America and we were there for 25 years, I left the entertainment industry and the modelling industry well behind me. So I dove into teaching and being a, a birth and labour assistant. So that that job, I think, helped me transition a little easier into into the aspect of the weight gain and everything. I mean, it was still challenging, but in America, where I was not known, I, no one knew who the, who the heck I was, um, and I and I did work that was very important to me emotionally and mentally. So that that was a big help to me. But in moving back to Australia, where I was recognised again as the former Dolly model and you know, people like going, yeah, she was a size six. I'm a size 14 now. <laughs> like <laughs> and that's almost okay. everyone. Right? Yeah. That's okay. Um, but it was the thing that was just sort of that nothing that I was doing, no, no dieting, no extra exercise made an ounce of difference to, <laughs> to what my body shape was doing. And that was a thing that was so confusing. I'm like, why is this not working? And, you know, come to find out there's insulin resistance and all that sort of stuff that, that goes into, into perimenopause and menopause. But, um, but you know, it, yeah, it, it forces you to take a long, hard look about what's really important about who you are these days. We're speaking with uh, Alison Bray, now Alison Daddo, and you would know her face from the 80s and 90s as a, a model. She was a very successful model in Australia. And she married Cameron Daddo, so they were, you know, a celebrity power couple. But now she's written a book called Queen Menopause, which is about the seismic changes that can happen in your body and your mind and your heart and really right down to your core when you when you go through this major life change. I'd love to hear your thoughts too. Head to the Facebook page, ABC Radio National, and tell us how it was for you, particularly if there were any positive aspects where you came out feeling stronger and more like yourself. Alison, we'll go a little bit more into the, the kind of current day things in a moment, but I just want to stick with the past for a minute because you write about the effect that modelling had on your feelings about yourself and that feeling of not having a voice, having no confidence. Confidence. And that mm. really played out for you throughout your life, didn't it, in, in your relationship? Tell us a bit more about that. I went into modelling as a, as a pretty insecure kid anyway. And, you know, the, the idea that, that modelling gives you confidence and it's all glamorous and, and lovely, look, there's aspects of that which is absolutely true, though, yeah, with modelling, you know, it's not about how you look – or sorry, it's not about how you feel or, you know, what you think. It's, it's just about how you look. And um, so that, that really, that's the part that stayed with me very much so that I, as an insecure kid going into a job where it only mattered what I look like, I, I hung on to that for a long time, just going, well, no one's going to care what I have to say. No one's going to want to know how I feel or think. And I went through life very much that way, you know, shutting down my wisdom, shutting down my voice. 
I was a chronic people pleaser and it was very detrimental to me in so many ways in my life where I should have been saying no or I should have been saying yes. And, and it was a real look back for me when, when I hit perimenopause and menopause to go, whoa, this has got to change. And, I, <laughs> and I'm so glad it has. But it's, it's also a common theme, you know, from the women I've spoken to, that people-pleasing aspect that we, you know, we sit down and we don't make a noise. It's, it's, it's not good. And it's a big dynamic to change in a family and a relationship, isn't it, when you do realise it's unsustainable? Tell us how that went for you in your family when you you realised that you had to put some thought into where your own needs fit in the hierarchy. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I mean, it was, you know, Cam's always been someone who's taken care of himself really well. And he, he was always encouraging me to do the same thing, you know, go do this, go do that. But it was me that was going, oh, I can't, I've got to the kids. And I oh, no, that's okay. You go, I'll stay in a lot of that, a lot of that kind of martyrish somewhat stuff. Um, but then when I started finding my feet and started going, actually, I'm going to do this. And no, I'm not going to join you this weekend. And I'm going out over here and I'm taking this class. It was such a great thing. And he really loved it. He really applauded it. And I, I do remember a few conversations happening within my family when I would come home to Australia where, you know, little Alex, I'm the youngest, who was always sort of the nice girl joining in the political conversations and going, yep, no, nope, that's not right. That's that's a total load of crap. I'm not doing that or this is wrong. And sort of the, uh, the bulging eyes of my parents and siblings going, whoa, she's got a bit of a voice now. So it's it's been good. Well, that does sounds like a really positive thing to come out of this turbulent time. There was also, though, the loss of libido that so many women go through and mm. so many relationships struggle under. How did that play out for you and Cam? Oh, look, I think that's been one of the hardest things. Um, it was hard for me and, of course, it was hard for Cam as well. And the thing that came up around mostly for me was this, this feeling of shame that I, that I was embarrassed and ashamed that I – it just wasn't on my radar. I just – I was too tired. It was the last thing I thought about. I wasn't thinking about having sex with anyone else. It was just not what I wanted to do. I was too physically hot to be touched. I was, you know, going off of a couple of hours of sleep at night at times and so cranky as all get out. So it was really difficult um, for me and I know for him because that's something that's his love language is touch and affection. So it took a real toll and we had many discussions about it. But it wasn't until we tackled we tackled it as if menopause was the problem, not that I was the problem. So once we were on the same page, we went, okay, let's look at menopause from our side going, how do we change this? What can we do? What are the things that can make a difference in our relationship that's going to get us back on track somehow? You know, the smaller things, the hand-holding, the, the extra cuddles, you know, that sort of stuff really started making its way back into the relationship and got us going. Yeah, make the connection and then the sex may follow. May not, but it may. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Alison, it's really sad some of the passages in the book because you can see how low you got, you know, crying in the shower, mm -hmm. feeling at times like your family would be better off without you. But you say you don't believe perimenopause made you depressed. What do you mean by that? What, what do you cause? that yeah look I think it was a mix I actually think it was 
you know, as I say, it was a perfect storm, really. Um, it was this move from America to Australia. It was leaving 25 years of friendships where my children were raised, all of their friends. Um, it was leaving the safety and comfort of that as I'm in the midst of just this severe, stressful point, um, arriving back in Australia, not having any community around me. And I think especially for women during this time, we need our community of ladies around us to sort of look at each other and go, are you feeling this? Because I'm feeling this. Um, and I lost all of that. And so, I, yes, I didn't want to blame perimenopause for depression. Like that's what's going to happen if, you get, if you're in perimenopause. But certainly, you know, my adrenals were absolutely shot from all the stress and the, the you know, the, the lowering of the progesterone and everything that was going on for me uh, just sent me down a very, very dark spiral into, into a depressive episode that was very, very challenging. And we'll talk in a moment about those medical, psychological, physical, emotional aspects that can all come together in this perfect storm for so many women and get some thoughts on that. Uh, Alison Daddo, you, you, look, you talked about uh, prioritising your own needs more, a bit of self-care, talking, reforming those intimate connections with your husband. And you describe ultimately this period that you go through as an awakening from which you re-emerge feeling unshackled from the role you've been in. What is the new role that you you start to define yourself how do you see yourself now look I really see myself as it's going to sound really weird but autonomous like I was for so long I was Lotus River Bodhi's mum or I was Cameron's wife and now it's it's just me and it's standing on my own two feet and now I ask myself every day, what do you want to do? And I, and I use the same kind of terminology that I would with my kids or my husband. And I, I noticed this the other day where I was talking to myself like, okay, honey, what do you need? What do you need today, sweetheart? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, it's so lovely that I'm talking to myself the same way I talk to other people. And that's been a massive change for me and being okay with everything that I feel, like if I don't want to go somewhere, you know, why do I not want to go? Because I'm tired and I just need to stay at home. All right, that's what you're doing. No longer that idea of you've got to push through this. You've got to keep quiet and just do it anyway. I'm just not doing that. I just don't like that. I've done it for too long and I'm not doing it anymore. So, that's really been the biggest change for me. Yep. A lot of my friends are saying, it's just a joy piking on things. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> really do it. Is. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, we've been hearing from Alison Daddo about her experience of menopause. Her book is called Queen Menopause. Let's get some of that medical perspective now from Dr. Fatima Khan. She's a doctor and a menopause specialist. She runs her own clinic in Melbourne and teaches GPs and medical students how to approach menopause. Dr. Khan, welcome to Life Matters. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Hilary, for having me on your platform. We're very pleased to have you here because I think a lot of people are saying, look, you know, I know my experience, I've just heard Alison's experience, but what is the medical background to some of these experiences? Uh, how common first is Alison's journey through that deep depression, really low times, to this sense of rebirth as a stronger sense, a version of herself? Do you see that often? Yes, actually, it's, I think a lot of what Alison uh, spoke about this morning resonates a lot with all the women I see. Um, and I think it's number one, appreciating that approximately three to four million women are menopausal or perimenopausal in Australia. So that's a huge number. It's 50% of the, the population of Australia will experience this. 
And I think what we need to shift away, menopause by definition is your last menstrual period and the perimenopause is the time leading up to it, which can be five to six years before that. And of course, when your period stops, that's a very easy uh, milestone to identify, 12 months of no periods and follows that hot flushes and night sweats. But what we don't discuss openly is the impact on your emotional and mental health. So beyond the physical symptoms is the mental health that women get really troubled by. Because we don't discuss it as healthcare professionals and amongst lay people, a lot of women find that the most distressing. So those are things like anxiety, low mood, brain fog, memory um, difficulties, um, unable to focus, concentrate, um, all the usual things that you need to effectively function in your life and everyday life. Um, so I think it's about moving away from just a reproductive function of our hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. They're not just there to help us get pregnant and have a cycle every month. They have a vital role in our mental health, our brain health, our bone health, and our heart health. That's so really interesting, look- isn't it, the, the role of estrogen? Because you are concerned, Fatima Khan, that, that if women go see their GP about some of the anxiety and depression they're having, they might be misdiagnosed. What do you mean by that? What happens? I guess what happens is the early perimenopausal symptoms are more psychological. Um, So they get put on antidepressants. It's not very um, uncommon that they'll present with these symptoms with fatigue, low libido, lack of motivation, I'm feeling anxious, my mood's all over the place. Um, And then say, okay, well, you know, maybe try some antidepressants. So it's not uncommon. They'll be put on a trial of antidepressants, which may or may not help initially. But you'll see a lot of women will say and walk away from that consultation, I'm not depressed. Because to be depressed, you really need um, two weeks of consistent low mood. And there's a bit of a volatility in the mood here because the hormones are fluctuating. So I think it's about recognizing those symptoms. And there are things other than antidepressants that can help, such as lifestyle, which we all know about exercise for mental health is great, eating the right foods, but also psychological therapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. And there's some other modalities which are really useful in helping with those mental health symptoms. You should see the comments on our Facebook page, Fatima. Joss says, yep, I had severe anxiety for almost three years. She went through it. She was put on traditional antidepressants and then she finally found a good doctor. And she says, within days of starting an estrogen patch, my anxiety and panic disorder started to lift. Within a month, it was pretty much gone. But she says her brain had had over two and a half years to learn how to be anxious. So there's still some ongoing issues there. And Samantha says she had trouble getting GPs to listen to her. She says it took her two years of pursuing before she found one who would actually listen. Uh, And they were very risk-averse and focused on uh, the breast cancer study, which turned a lot of people off hormone replacement therapy, Fatima. Uh, Where do we stand with that now? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, being a menopause specialist, my role is prescribing hormone replacement therapy. That's why women come to see me. And for 30% of the women, the symptoms would be very severe, which impact every aspect of their life, their work life, their home life, their relationships, and they will need some sort of help. And there's no shame in that. And for them, taking hormone replacement therapy, which we now call menopause hormone therapy, is life-changing. They will say to me, I haven't felt like this in 10 years. You're giving me myself back. You know, all the things that you want to hear, they start, um, they'll be entering new career pathways, new relationships, restoring old friendships, 
all those things they wanted to do. And HRT can be pivotal in transforming women's lives if that's what they need. Um, the conventional studies and the data, the risk of breast cancer comes from the Women's Health Initiative, which is about 20-year-old study. It's a very old study. It wasn't well designed and it showed us using synthetic hormones, which we don't use anymore. So it was Premarin and a, a synthetic progesterone called Provera. Um, we don't use this anymore. They were linked with a very, very small risk of breast cancer. We now use natural estrogen through the skin um, as a patch or a gel, which is very safe for any kind of blood clot risk. And we use micronized progesterone or other forms of progesterone, which are not systemically being absorbed in a synthetic progesterone form. So those risks are not there with the newer types. And we also recognize that drinking two glasses of wine every night increases your risk more than taking a synthetic combined HRT. A body mass index or being overweight more than BMI of 30 increases your risk by 24 extra cases per thousand women. So I think it's really important to go back and look at our basic fundamentals, which is nutrition, movement, having a more positive mindset about this phase of our lives and social connection. Those are kind of my four fundamental pillars because I think even if you're exercising, you're eating well, the isolation is what really impacts women because we don't talk about it openly. Whenever we don't talk about something, there's a lot of shame around it. And with shame comes isolation and that's not going to help anyone. So yeah. having open conversations, having a positive narrative about it. Oh, you know, I got woken up every hour with a drench. So what are you doing? For it and then that's the and, and shows like yours and this is this is fantastic because i moved here about four years ago from the uk so in the uk they're, they're talking about this in the news every other day so I, this is really refreshing that we're talking about this really important topic that impacts so many women on national radio so you know well done to life matters and all the people behind this show that are bringing this conversation forward. Well, we're very happy to, though. It's interesting because when we talk about the positive aspects, we do get flooded with a lot of people sharing their not-so-positive stories. And it sounds like that positive mindset and positive narrative that you talk about is a broader societal thing, not just individual women going, OK, I'm going to suck up the night sweats and try and get through this. Fatima, we've got a few minutes left with you, and I really want to talk about some of the main symptoms that women experience and, and what causes them. Uh, Ali talked about the exhaustion. What's going on there? Yeah, so the the perimenopause will normally start by changing in your menstrual cycle, so heavy periods, flooding, changing all over the place. And that can often make women quite anemic, so make sure you're checking your iron levels. It's not uncommon that to be a cause. The fluctuating hormone levels, especially estrogen, we know is linked directly with serotonin, which is your happy hormones, which is what is stimulated with antidepressants. Whenever estrogen drops down or plummets down, we will notice a low level of melatonin along with serotonin. These both impact your mood and your sleep. So then, of course, if you're not sleeping, you're feeling low in your mood and then you're anemic, you're going to feel quite rotten. So I think it's just recognizing the symptoms and the phase of your life. So changes in menstrual cycle, changes in mood around your menstrual cycle, changes in energy level, changes in sleep. These should trigger women in thinking about, okay, is there something happening with my menstrual cycle? Could this be the perimenopause? So it comes from education, awareness, recognition, and then seeking help. That's the kind of um, pathway we want to follow and don't put up with it because the average symptoms last seven years. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's take help when you're suffering this and then um, you can always 
you know, um, just don't suffer. I just see so many women have ruined and lost so much by the time they get to me. And I can make a huge difference in their life, but they leave it too late. Well, and that loss of libido springs to mind here because that can have a terrible impact on relationships if there are other factors at play that make it harder to to take the approach that Alison and Cameron Daddo did, which was to talk and sit down and say, look, let's look at menopause as the problem, not as Alison as the problem. Uh, is hormone therapy a magic bullet for that loss of libido? or do you need to look at it more holistically? You've got to look at it more holistically. I mean, we're very lucky in Australia that we've got a TJ-approved testosterone therapy for persistent low libido, um, which is effective. However, you've got to look at other things as well. You know, as you said, if you're not sleeping well, you're tired, you're fatigued, all of those things, they can contribute. And I always talk about non-sexual intimacy. So I really like how Alison talked about simple things like cuddles, holding hands, we lose that time with our partners, going for a walk, holding hands, walking the dog, um, maybe practicing a hobby together, dancing together, playing chess together, finding a non-sexual time together, which connects us. And then you'll find everything else flows in. We're speaking with Dr. Fatima Khan, who's a medical doctor and menopause specialist who runs her own menopause clinic in Melbourne. And you heard a bit earlier from Alison Daddo, the author of Queen Menopause, which uh, delves very deeply into her own experiences of this and how ultimately it was a positive experience. Um, the hot flushes, Fatima, just finally, what causes them? And is there any way to lessen them apart from uh, the hormone therapy that you mentioned? Yeah, so it's interesting. We think of estrogen as an ovarian um, and a sex hormone, but it's actually majority of its impact in the in the in the brain. So our thermostat is in the brain, and the minute the estrogen is fluctuating or reduces, it becomes a bit narrow. So it starts kind of having this messaging that oh, estrogen goes down, then it thinks oh, your body heats up. So it causes a lot of dysregulation of the thermostat essentially which is very sensitive to the levels of estrogen so when they start fluctuating or changing we start getting hot flushes and it's almost like someone said to me in my clinic yesterday i'm blowing up like a volcano from my core and it's erupting through my mouth and my head can you imagine having that every 30 minutes so you know and it's some some women it accompanies with in severe anxiety and palpitations so that's during the day and then at night time they'll be getting them every hour and they'll be having drenching night sweats, and then their partners will be sleeping in a separate bedroom uh, because they've got the window open, he's got the doona on. So that's not going to help with your libido in relationship either. So I think it's about looking at the woman as a whole, addressing all the symptoms, and then making sure that we're restoring that function so the woman can then start to focus on all the things that she needs to do, which is, you know, focusing on a relationship, work, and herself. How many people do get severe symptoms? 30% will get severe symptoms, and the average symptoms last seven to eight years. But I've got women in their 70s who are still getting symptoms, and my eldest patient who takes hormone replacement therapy is, is 87. So, you know, there's. I think it's important to realize that menopause is a journey. There's a different starting point and a different end point. The good news is there is an end point, uh, but it's a unique journey for every woman with a different pathway. And Alison's story, she was saying, you know, I felt transformed by menopause. I'm a better me now. I'm stronger. I'm healthier. It's had a positive impact. How many people do you see that have that experience? I think with the right support mindset, this is a liberating experience for women. It's a time when they let go of the past. It's a time where they don't care about what society's conditioned to do. 
Until 50, I say we're an autopilot. We know we go to school, we have to get married, we have to have babies, we have to work, we have to behave a certain way. But at 50, it's, you know what? I can do what I want to do. There is no um, script or uh, manual for how you lead your life after 50, which is actually amazing. And the average age of women living in Australia is 85. So you've got another 30, 40 years post-menopause to do the things on your terms and what you want to do. We've been speaking with Dr. Fatima Khan, a medical doctor and menopause specialist in Melbourne who teaches GPs and medical students how to approach this massive life change that affects 50% of the population. Fatima, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Hilary. Thank you again. I knew about influencers, those people on social media who have millions of followers and sometimes make lots of money talking about particular issues or spruiking brands. But until recently, I did not know there were pelvic floor influencers. I guess, why not? We'll find out a bit more about them shortly. But first, let's talk about why there is so much interest in information about our pelvic floors. Kimberly Smith was a professional netballer and a former corporate lawyer, young, fit, and thinking of pelvic floor issues as things that happen to older people. She now works in the perinatal exercise field. Kimberly, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you here because this is something that affects so many people. What has helped you deal with that situation? You can head to the ABCRN Facebook page and pop a comment up there. Kim, when did you first realise that you might have a problem with your pelvic floor? Well, as you mentioned, I was uh, an elite athlete. I played netball for the New South Wales Swifts and um, at the end of a, like an extremely hard session, I would actually experience incontinence. But at that time, I did not consider that to be an issue. I almost saw it as a mark of strength that I'd push myself to my limits. It really wasn't when I until I fe- fell pregnant and actually after the birth of my first child that I realised that something was significantly wrong. And you've had three kids. How did things progress? So after the birth of my first, I worked really hard with a women's health physiotherapist, Liz, who we'll speak to later. Um, And I think I I really got my pelvic floor back to a place where I felt really confident and I could run and my life was quite similar, albeit with a few modifications and a new focus on pelvic floor health. But after the birth of my second um, and then subsequently my third, I think my pelvic floor um, strength and... um, my ability to control my continence mechanisms really started to decrease. And this led to what I call sort of an unravelling of myself as an elite athlete. I was so used to identifying as someone who was fit and healthy and strong. And suddenly there were a lot of things that I could no longer do that I couldn't do confidently and a lot of modifications I had to make to my life. Yeah, Um, a weight session at the gym suddenly becomes a bit fraught, doesn't it? But, But what kind of symptoms were you having, Kim? So I have a pelvic organ prolapse. So that's feelings of heaviness and dragging. Some women describe it as um, constantly wearing a pad or a feeling of a golf ball between your thighs. But I also have incontinence um, and I have a mixed um, form of incontinence. So stress, urinary incontinence and urge urinary incontinence. And so basically it means that I might leak when my pelvic was under a lot of load. So things like jumping or even dancing at a friend's wedding but 
I know. It, it, it infiltrates a lot of areas of your life you don't really think about and consider. Um, but also there's other things like, you know, the running of a tap or the getting to the front door, which I find those things more frustrating because you know that your brain's just triggering them. Um, it's nothing, you know, particularly that you're doing at the time. But, um, yeah, so I guess the, the mix of those two things means that it does affect quite a lot of my, my day and my life. And the, the mental experience of dealing with those things must be tricky too. I mean, you mentioned the impact when you went from thinking of yourself as, you know, this amazing, fit, elite sports person. How did you deal with kind of the mental challenge of the changes that were happening to you? It's been an incredibly long process. I think um, when you experience pelvic floor issues, I often consider it as a a leaking of confidence (laughs) a leak of trust in your body and so bit by bit slowly but slowly I started to lose confidence in my body and that means you start to compensate and you start to tense up and and these things can actually exacerbate your incontinence and so I became quite fearful Um, and then on the flip side of that I have worked really hard you know with my women's health physiotherapist and myself to build that confidence back into my body to build strength back into my pelvic floor. And I've also modified my lifestyle quite a lot. Um, In what I don't ways? play netball anymore. Ah. I don't I don't run. Um, I'll, I choose low-impact exercise now. Um, even things like picking up my kids, I'm quite mindful of how I pick up my daughters. Um, I, don't, I try not to carry them for long periods of time. I would always choose the pram over the baby carrier. Um, so it's a lot of different ways that it has impacted, but I, I feel like, um, you know, for me, it's probably made me a more empathetic mother, um, in that I, I don't see myself as invincible anymore. Um, I see myself as thoroughly human and, you know, it's, it's, I think that there's been positives out of it as well. I've learned to respect my body a little bit more. I don't push myself to the nth degree. So there has been some positives, but it's been definitely a long journey. Well, and you mentioned that, you know, you've been working with your pelvic floor, pelvic health physiotherapist. What did you do to treat the issue apart from the lifestyle changes that you've mentioned? So most people think that pelvic floor exercises are just a cure for incontinence. And I worked with Liz. I was very lucky to be referred to her after the birth of my first daughter. And first of all, what she did was an internal assessment of my pelvic floor to see where it was at, what our baseline was. Um, and with her, we've t- I've taken a multifaceted approach. We have done pelvic floor muscle training. I now wear a pessary, which is a medical-grade silicon device that is inserted in the vaginal canal and works to support the pelvic floor organs. Um, Liz calls it like a sports bra (laughs) for the (laughs) vagina. (laughs) Um, And I've also done bladder training um, where I've learned to reduce that stimulus that's causing me to need to go when I get to the front door. Um, So, and, and on top of all of that, I've learned better breathing mechanics, better posture, better movement mechanics that, support my pelvic floor rather than putting excess load on it so it's been it's been a lot um i never i was one of those people who like you said pelvic floor out of my out of sight out of mind um and so there's a lot and so i'm really you know happy to be talking about this because i think there's so much that women and men can do to support their pelvic health 
Um, but we just need to open the conversation about it, I guess. Yes, indeed. And and that's another surprising thing for a lot of people. I think that it does affect all genders in different ways and to different extents. Kim, you were a professional sports person as well as a corporate lawyer. Was there information available to you at the time about how your body might respond to this intense exercise and the impacts that you might see on your pelvic floor over time? There really wasn't. Um, I think that's changing now. But I think back of all the screenings I had as an athlete um, and all of the education sessions I sat through and not one was on the pelvic floor. And you might have heard the statistics surrounding netballers and incontinence um, even before they've given birth. And it's around one in three will experience incontinence. Wow. And I think of all those teams I played with and I never once mentioned or heard the word incontinence mentioned. I never once heard about pelvic health. So it really, um, you know, I think our athletes do deserve better and they do so much rigorous screening. They are subject to so much education. Some of that should be dedicated to their pelvic health um, because it's so important over their long-term life. Yes, indeed. Well, and just chatting to you today, Kim, I think my pelvic floor is now somewhere around my sternum. I'm just being very, very <laughs> yeah. aware. You can't talk about pelvic floor without doing a few exercises. <laughs> Get that look on your face in the checkout queue. Kim, thanks so much for talking about it with us today because it is quite confronting for a lot of people to to have to realise how important it is. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Kimberly Smith, uh, who was a professional netballer, played for the New South Wales Swifts and a corporate lawyer, and she now works in the perinatal exercise field. Liz Evans is a women's health and continence physiotherapist. You heard Kim mention her earlier. Liz, great to have you with us today too. Hi, Hilary. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, one out of three netballers experiencing incontinence, how does that compare to the general population? So the the one in three netballers is, is, is interesting because we're looking at majority of them wouldn't have actually had babies. And so that's given it's kind of quite an impact-based sport. So we often find in kind of young girls in sports where there is a lot of impact that we have quite high rates of incontinence. When we look at the general population, um, so men and women, we've got a 25% of all adults will have at least one issue with their pelvic floor. And so we've got all types of different pelvic floor issues. We've got stress incontinence, which is the incontinence that Kimberly was talking about when running, jumping, um, laughing, those types of things, sneezing. We've got prolapse, which Kimberly mentioned as well. Um, we've got urge urinary incontinence. We've also got fecal incontinence. And we've got another issue called chronic pelvic pain. But in terms of incontinence specifically, we've got, you know, one in four Australians are suffering from some degree of incontinence. And I think what's really interesting there to know is that, you know, 80% of those are women, but over half of those are actually under 50 years of age. And I think historically a lot of people have thought that these are issues that are for only for old people. And it's really important to kind of get that message out there that kind of over half of the people suffering from incontinence are actually under the age of 50. Yeah, where are those information pathways falling down that so many people are reaching adulthood not knowing that they need to be thinking about their pelvic floor and possibly doing some exercises? Yeah, look, I think that, I mean, this is how long do we have, but I think historically it's, um, 
It's a case of historically, I think a lot of this, the issues surrounding kind of incontinence and whatnot have kind of been quite embarrassing and people have been dismissed. And so I think historically, you know, it might have been a, a part and parcel of the comments made, oh, it's just part of childbirth or it's just part of old age. And so it doesn't incentivise people to want to talk about it or actually seek care for it because they're actually, you know, being dismissed or think that there's nothing that can be done about it. And we know from research that, you know, 70% of those that have urinary incontinence actually don't seek advice or treatment, which is really sad. Yeah, it really is. So Mm. what does this mean, Liz? Do we all need to be doing pelvic floor exercises regularly? So look, the, the, the majority of people should be doing pelvic floor exercises regularly, ideally daily. Um, now I say that with a caveat because what's important kind of to know is that just like any other muscle in the body, if we've got a muscle, we've got, we, in order, we have to have a healthy muscle. So if, let's just talk about a bicep because people know that's the muscle in the front of their arm that, that we use in everyday life. And if we have a, a bicep muscle that can contract well and can relax well, it's a healthy muscle that can be there when we need it to kind of lift bags or whatnot. If that bicep muscle became kind of really short and contracted, it would become painful and not work very well. And if we didn't actually use the arm at all, let's say we didn't use our arm for a whole year and the muscle wasted away, it wouldn't work very well. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that we maintain a healthy muscle bulk and kind of throughout our lifetime. And that comes from actually activating those pelvic floor muscles. Um, And one thing I'd love to draw attention to that many people don't realize, because I think a lot of the time, the first time, first time that people hear about pelvic floor muscles might be during those childbearing years. And then often, you know, people kind of forget about them. They might do them kind of quite, you know, avidly for kind of a bit of time after they have a baby, let's say. But what's really important to know, kind of, you know, I think particularly for a lot of like a lot of listeners is that your pelvic floor, it's a little bit like a little bit like a bank, like a muscle bank that over the course of your lifetime, you want to keep adding to it and building on it so that basically when you hit that period of childbirth or when you get into menopause, when estrogen levels drop and muscle bulk changes start to occur, you're actually entering menopause at a point where you've got a good muscle bulk there so that as those changes occur, that the threshold of muscle that you have is still high enough to keep you continent through those menopausal years into older age. Liz Evans, really interesting text has popped in. Re-athletes, male and female pelvises are different. Males have a wedge and females are basins, they say. This means different exercises are needed. We should talk about, you know, if you have a uterus versus if you don't have a uterus, is the approach different? It's it's absolutely, it's so different. So look, in terms of anatomically, yes, so the, 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 the female pelvis and we, we have a hiatus at the bottom. So if you kind of think about the pelvis, there's, there's the hole. And then the female genitalia, we have a hiatus from the urethra, the vagina and the anus. The men don't have the vaginal cavity. And so their anatomy is completely different. And so their urethra actually hooks up and goes upwards before it goes down. And so they're much, much less likely to get stress incontinence, let's say, because of the anatomical structure. Where with women, we've got that kind of that opening, which kind of makes us more likely to have incontinence or pelvic organ prolapse if those pelvic floor muscles aren't maintained or the fascia that supports the organs aren't kind of, you know, aren't maintained or they undergo kind of damage through a lifetime. I was reading recently, to my horror, that there are some lifestyle issues that might make things worse. For example, a lot of sitting or stress. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. So, look, in terms of 
you know, sitting kind of feeds into being sedentary. And when we're sedentary, we don't use our muscles as we should. We don't have, you know, really great breathing patterns. Our hip flexors, the, the, the muscles in the front of our hips tighten up. Our buttock muscles get all kind of soft and, and floppy and whatnot. And the pelvic floor kind of links in with all of the, the, the – it's a 3D structure, the pelvic floor, that links with the rest of the body. So it actually links in with your diaphragm, links in with your abdominal muscles, links with your, the muscles in your hips and your glutes and whatnot. And so if we become quite – wasted in our muscles so that they're not kind of activating as they should then again they can stop working as they should be so they could become lower tone where they're not being activated enough but equally if you become quite stressed like I was talking about earlier a muscle can actually become shortened and tight and if we have a shortened tight muscle a short and tight muscle, if you could imagine, go back to that bicep idea, it can't, if it's already shortened and tight, it's not going to be able to lift the bags very well or um, kind of hold something for a long period of time. And then we kind of go down a path of muscles that we be, could be getting incontinence from that, or we could be getting issues with pain with intercourse um, or pain with penetration because those muscles actually aren't allowing, uh, haven't got that full range of motion that we require. Another text uh, with some advice from Grandma from the Gold Coast. For older folk, buy a walker which is light so you don't experience bladder leakage when you lift it into your car boot. That's long-term planning. We're speaking Ooh. with Liz Evans, who's a women's health and continence physiotherapist. Liz, if you are experiencing problems, what does a pelvic floor physio do that a regular physio or a GP, even a women's GP, might not be able to do? Yeah, sure. So it's it's... A lot of people don't know that pelvic health physios exist. And what we do is kind of, we, we really kind of take a whole body approach to work out what's going on with a woman's pelvic floor. So we'd spend a lot of time questioning and asking kind of a whole detailed um, history from her in terms of him or her, I should say, um, in terms of, in, you know, symptoms of incontinence. We ask a lot of issues, um, questions surrounding intercourse, symptoms that are kind of prolapse, how people pass urine on the toilet, how they do poos, their history, their lifestyle factors genetic history and whatnot that might predispose them to kind of incontinence or prolapse. So we take a very thorough history. Then what we would do is we would then explain to the woman that we would, in most cases, like to do an internal examination. And, and what we would do in that would be assessing a number of things. So we're assessing how the pelvic floor muscles work so how they contract and how they relax how strong they are we're assessing if they've got any damage in them that could have occurred from childbirth or other trauma through their life we're assessing the position of their organs so whether they've got kind of any positions of their bladder the uterus or bowel that have actually kind of prolapsed um, and looking at a lot of kind of other things and then we will actually then go into based based on the history and based on what we find, we then have to kind of work out, well, what approach is going to be right for this for this woman or man based on their symptoms and what we've found in that examination. And so it's very much a case-by-case -case, um, approach that we take. And this is where, you know, when you do read, you know, how to do a pelvic floor exercise in a brochure, and I can't tell you the number of times I have People come into the clinic and go, oh, I've been doing my pelvic floor exercises, you know, from time to time and, and I assess them and they're not doing them the right way. Mm. Um, and that breaks my heart because I just think if you've been putting the effort into doing the pelvic floor exercise, at least make sure when you're putting that effort in, you're doing it the right way. And I think that um, that's a really important message to get across because honestly, if you can 
get to a, a women's health physio that can actually help or a men's health physio to, to get you to make sure you're doing it the right way, it will put you in good stead for actually when you are doing the exercises. Yes, and the right way for you particularly, as you say. Now, that mm. brings us to the pelvic floor influencers issue. A lot of people mm. on social media, uh, products promising to fix your pelvic floor. We found one that involves video games. How useful mm. are these kinds of things? So we've got kind of two different things happening here. We've got... Um, Let's, let's jump onto the video game things first. So the video games, in some ways, I actually absolutely love the idea and I do recommend it to some of my patients, but that's because I've actually spent time with them first and I've essentially worked out what their issue is. I've worked, I've taught them how to do a pelvic floor activation the right way and worked out if I think that they actually need pelvic floor strengthening. And then I would have recommended the video game for them because it's a wonderful incentive. You know, we all love little games and visuals and if you've got something that makes pelvic floor exercises more fun, why not? But the problem with the kind of the games is when people are getting them, you know, ordering them online and they're not actually kind of sure if they actually need them for their problem or they know how to actually activate their pelvic floor the right way. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the probe that kind of goes into the vagina. So it's a probe that goes into the vagina and it links to a little kind of game that you play where you can essentially, when your pelvic floor pulls on it, you can flick a little ball up or kind of hit an, hit, hit an object. And then when you let your pelvic floor go, it kind of drops down. And so often the probe might not be exactly the right fit for somebody. So some people's vaginal hiatus is kind of too wide for the probe or too narrow. And so that's where I think that they have a really great place, but I do think that it needs to be preceded with caution because I want you know people to kind of be choosing that device for them when it's for the right for, their, for them as an individual. So Liz Evans, do you reckon you can teach us how to do a basic pelvic floor exercise in the next uh, 50 seconds? You want me to talk you through one? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Okay. So I want you to bring your mind completely into your vagina and I want you to let everything go to start with. So just bring completely to your vagina. I want you to take a deep breath in for me, Hilary. As you breathe out, I want you to imagine that kind of vagina. Imagine there's a little tampon sitting in the vagina and I want you to kind of try and kind of give it a little hug. So using those kind of muscles in the lips of the vagina. And then I want you to see if you can actually pull that tampon in towards you a little bit more. So just ever so slightly, I don't want you to be holding your breath. Oh. And I want you to let it go for me. Yeah, let's try it again without holding your breath. One more time, deep breath in. Give that tampon a little hug and try and pull that in. So we can use all different cues. We could imagine that we're trying to stop the flow of urine. We could imagine that we were trying to stop, if we've got wind, that we're actually trying to stop wind coming out of our back passage. So it's just about really connecting with those muscles, finding a cue that works for you, getting some, some feedback, and then making sure that you engage with those pelvic floor muscles daily because, you know, one of the messages that kind of the Continents Foundation of Australia who really kind of, you know, are, are doing a lot of work in terms of promoting Women's Health Week in conjunction with the Gene Howells Foundation is that they really kind of want to draw attention to the fact that, you know, less than 18% of women do pelvic floor exercises daily despite such high rates of incontinence and that pelvic floor exercises are actually the most effective kind of way to prevent issues um, coming on and actually are a wonderful way to actually treat issues with the pelvic floor and whether it kind of gives improvement or cure, incredibly important. Thanks so much, Liz Evans, women's health and continence physiotherapist. And you heard earlier from Kimberly Smith, former professional netball player who now also works in the perinatal exercise field.
Darren Pope was listening to one of your stories about a precious object and he was inspired to record a short piece about an object that's important to him. That object has links to a famous Australian artist, now deceased, but we dug into the National Archives and found a recording of him talking about his work. That's coming up, but first let's hear from budding artist Darren. My precious object is a tiny little pottery vessel made by the Australian artist John Percival. It was made in the last years of his life. He had um, quite serious mental problems and was in a mental institute and he would spend day after day making these tiny little vessels. It's signed on the bottom. It's not worth a lot of money monetarily but it has great sentimental value to me partly because it's ah, a moment in time for a great artist who is quite famous for doing quite intricate porcelain figurines and marvelous paintings but who in the latter part of his life had regressed to doing these very simple very naive very honest little vessels. So as a student of art, I find it very inspirational and uh, it's very precious to me. It was given to me by my mother. It was given to her by her friend who was a nurse in that hospital where John Percival was resident. So uh, yes, it's a wonderful thing to be held. My name is John Percival and uh I'd been a potter for some 15 years, in, interlocked with my other work, and I developed a rather beautiful glaze, which at the time I called Song de Boeuf. I decided that it was too good to put on just ordinary pottery. So I thought of those little red angels around the Virgin Mary. So I proceeded to make these angels, and as I developed them, I found that the reason I'd called them angels was not because they represent flying um, spiritual objects, but because they represent humanity as a whole. That's the voice of John Percival, one of Australia's best-known artists, part of the Angry Penguins group. And we accessed that interview with him by Hazel Berg from the National Library of Australia. It was recorded in 1961. And thanks to Darren for telling us about his precious object and to sound engineer and art fan, Kerry Dell. Next time on Life Matters, with so much of the Western world focused on having a social media presence and standing out amongst the crowd, we present an antidote to that, a conversation about how to be humble, what it means and how it can improve your self-esteem. I'm Hilary Harper. I'll catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.